Hello and, and welcome to another edition of Trinity College Dublin Talks. With us today is Professor Orla Hardiman, who is a consultant neurologist uh, here in Trinity College Dublin. Orla uh, grew up in Dublin, went to school through Irish, and has since then studied in UCD, Harvard, various other places, and is one of the world's leading experts on motor neuron disease. Motor neuron disease has uh, many other names. You might know it as Lou Gehring's disease if you're American. Uh, it's also called... ALS. ALS. And what does that stand for? Amyotrophic atherosclerosis. And what is it in Irish? Gollern and Neuroglutic. There you are. But so ELA in, um, in, in Spanish. Yeah, uh, three names <laughs> in English, one name <laughs> in Irish, one <laughs> name <laughs> in Spanish. <laughs> so, um, we, 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 all up, how did you... Let's start at the beginning. You, you, you were a doctor before you became interested in motor neuron disease, or maybe not. How, how did you become a doctor? Why, how did you become a doctor? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well, when why? I was why? about four, mm. I decided I wanted to be a doctor without actually knowing anything. Um, uh, we had a very good um, GP, actually. Um, in fact, the GP that we had were the parents, the two GPs, the husband and wife. So it was really nice. Of the, and they were a team. And the wife was, um, she, she was a brilliant doctor in her own right as well. But they're actually the parents of the man who's now in charge of ADAPT. <laughs> Which is a centre <laughs> here in Trinity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the doctors weighed. So I was very impressed with what they did when I was a kid. So I'm one of five. Uh, so I decided I wanted to be a doctor. And, and was it a medical family? Was medicine I'm everywhere? I'm a complete aberration. I'm a total black sheep. So I come from a family of artists and composers and film directors. And the next generation are all artists and artists and actors and film directors and composers. And uh, So I'm completely, I'm totally black sheep in the family, I'm afraid. <laughs> but you, you, you followed through on your four-year-old <laughs> ambition, and you, you, you did it in UCD, then you, you yes, so I did, did I did my undergrad in UCD yeah. and, and um, uh, worked for a couple of years in, in the Richmond. But I, I actually did an intercalated year when I was in UCD. So I did a, a year in physiology, so I have a BSc, a science degree in physiology as well. So I really liked that sort of logical um, moving from first principles and not having to remember things, not very good at remembering things. So what's the difference between physiology and medicine? So physiology is, is the fundamental basis to medicine. So how, how things work, you know, the, the, it's a combination of biochemistry and biophysics and a bit of anatomy. So it's, it, it's, sort of, it's, it's a coordinating um, discipline. Uh, and, and, and if you understand your physiology, you understand how the body works. So I really liked that idea. And I really liked the idea that if you work from first principles, that you can deduce from a logical progression of, of first principles what's going on. And actually neurology, which, which is what I was attracted to, is very, very similar. You have to know a little bit about anatomy, which I'm not very good at, actually. But uh, you can work from first principles in neurology. And it's a, very, um, it's, a, it's a very logical discipline, but it's also very clinical. So you, you have to be good at examining people and then you have to know how to put the evidence together in a way that's logical, that fits with what we know of how the um, nervous system works from an anatomical and physiological point of view. So actually I got attracted to neurology quite early on for that reason, and somewhat unusually, although not at the time really, I, I, I went straight into neurology shortly after, just after my internship, and I did my training in neurology um, thereafter actually. And is that where you became interested in motor neuron disease? Well, motor neuron disease is, is um, it's, it's a one of, it's what we call a neurodegenerative disease. But when I was in training, it, it was, uh, it was considered within the group of diseases that affect nerve and muscle. 
So I, I did my training in, in Boston, and actually I, I had an interest in epilepsy at the time as well. And the, the program I chose for my residency in, in the US was, um, was very strong in epilepsy and um, what we call behavioral neurology, the neurological underpinnings of behavior. Um, um, and not didn't do very much neuromuscular disease at all, actually. Uh, but I got a, a very good training in, in, in both epilepsy and behavioral neurology and decided that probably I, w I didn't want to specialize in epilepsy, which is what my original idea was. Um, but, but the idea of neuromuscular disease, again, you can take it out and feel it and touch it, and you can take muscles out and grow them and figure out what's going on with them, and you can measure the nerve supply to the muscles. And that sort of thing. I found that quite attractive. So I did a fellowship um, in neuromuscular disease, and during my fellowship I had, I had the great privilege of, of working with um, one of the world leaders at that time in motor neuron disease. It was a very early field at the time. The, the man's name was Bob Brown. Yeah, he found the first gene that's uh, right. associated with motion in his lab. I wasn't working, I was working on muscle disease at the time. But I got a good <coughs> training. And he was a good mentor as a clinician as well, actually. I learned a lot from him as a clinician. Um, so, so when I came back to Ireland, um, I, I came back actually as a physiologist and um, cell biologist to UCD. But I really missed the, the clinical part of my training. So when a job came up for neurology, um, in Beaumont, I, I went for it and I got it. But I brought my experience in in science and cell biology and my background in physiology to my job, and also my training in neuromuscular. So I set up quite early on, actually even before I was appointed to Beaumont, I set up a neuromuscular clinic pro bono in Beaumont, and um, started. And is that a difficult thing to say? I mean, you say oh, I set up a clinic pro bono, which means for free. I mean, it sounds like one sentence. I imagine there's quite a lot of stress and strain behind that, yeah, or, but I mean, or not? Well, or, I mean, know, uh, are, are doctors and hospitals able to do this kind of thing? Uh, no, of course not. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it took, it took a lot of, uh, uh, you know, cajoling people, and, and, um, and uh, uh, I had a very good mentor in, in Beaumont as well who, who facilitated that. But no, of course, it, it wasn't easy, and there was, um, there, there was uh, some was resistance. resistance. Yeah. Yes, and of course. What would the resistance yeah. be? I mean, why, why would people resist? Well, who's this young one coming in trying to set up a clinic? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but, but on the with other hand, American notions. Yes, with, with, with notions. But on, on the other hand, there was, um, you know, there was clearly an unmet need. There were well, at can the we time. just take a step back then? Because, I mean, I'm pretty vague on what motor neuron disease is, and, and presumably it's been around a long time, has it? And um, but only recently, yeah, people I mean have begun it, it, to look at it. And it's yeah. a wasting disease, isn't it? Unfortunately, it's a wasting the body disease. Yeah. It's so it's a, it's a z one of the risk factors for motor neuron disease is age. So um, the peak age of, of onset is um, is 60s, mid 60s to 70s. Okay. So if you think about that, um, uh, the it wasn't very common until our life expectancy started going up. Well, we look sometimes, for example, historically at, at diseases that might have been described in history. And we know, for example, that Parkinson's was around because it's described in Shakespeare. Mm. We know, for example, that polio was around because there's, there's, there's hieroglyphics in, in um, Egypt that really? show a wasted leg um, wow. from polio. So I run a polio clinic as well. Uh, so there aren't that many descriptions. I suppose the, f the, the first really good description and the way it got its name, um, ALS, was in, in, um, in Paris. There was a, what would be considered the, f the father of neurology was a guy called um, uh, Charcot. And Charcot um, uh, ran a, a service in the Salpetre in, in Paris and trade, trained all of the 
neurologists of the late 19th and early 20th century, including Freud, actually. Um, and so um, Charcot described motor neuron disease and called it ALS. And it's a disorder where uh, the muscles waste away, um, but the muscles waste away because they lose the nerve supply. And the nerve supply that is lost are the motor nerves, the nerves that make us move. But it's unusual in that it, the nerves that make us move are in the brain in the spinal and in the spinal cord. And so the nerves in the brain that make us move and the nerves in the spinal cord that make us move both die off. Um, now, it's a lot more complicated than that now, but that's what Charcot first described. So we kind of know it from the late 19th century onwards, probably. So, so that's the, the problem. I mean, how well do we understand this? You've given a good, simplified explanation, but, but it, it seems to be a disease that despite the work, it doesn't affect that many people, does it? Uh, and um, it hasn't it's been that <coughs> researched. Uh, it's, it's probably uh, the, the incidence, the number of new cases per year is not that lower than MS. So it's, it's okay. not that so it's uncommon. On the, par with MS, the lifetime yeah. risk is about 1 in 350, so it's not that uncommon. Mm. Uh, but of course, unfortunately, people die within 3 to 5 years, so there aren't that many people living with the disease. So we, we have a very good um, understanding of that in Ireland because we've been running a register, which I also set up in 1994 when I, I came back, just after I came back to Ireland. And so we, we, we know all about motor neuron disease in Ireland. We know that we have about 150 cases per year. I see most of those. Um, new diagnosis, and we have about between 350 and 400 um, living with the disease at any one time. We know now that about um, 30 to 50 percent of people have other manifestations of the disease in, in terms of their thinking and their behaviour. So that wasn't really recognised up to maybe about 15 years ago. We're one of the groups who, who re-brought that forward as a, a very integral part of the disease. Actually, we've done quite a lot of work that, on that over the last 10 or 15 years here in Ireland. Yeah, well, let, let's talk about that uh, as much as we can, as members of the public, understand what, what you do. But, but there has been this uh, clear advance you know, you're running uh, a large team, 30 yes. people in yeah. the Trinity Biomedical Sciences Institute, and other people in other parts of the world are doing the same thing, and, and, and I presume that you collaborate and communicate all the time. What, 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 at a practical level, has been done, I suppose, to, to, to make things better? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think you can, you can divide to make things better into uh, two, two parts. Um, one is to make life better for people who are living with the disease, and that's really important for us as doctors. Probably the most important thing that we do, I think, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and, the, and the other thing is to, to try and make things better for the future, which is try and understand the disease and find new treatments. So I, I think our, our, the people that I work with internationally and, and our own group here are very focused on both of those things. So making things better for people today um, means providing really good services for people at what we would call a multidisciplinary level. So the clinic that, that, that we set up, or that I set up in the early 90s, which has been replicated in many parts of the world now, um, involves a kind of a flat service where I'm the person who makes the diagnosis, that's my skill and training. Um, but but there's, there are many other people in the clinic who, who bring other skills and training that are really important. For example, physio physiotherapy, speech and language therapy, therapy dietetics, psychology, palliative care, and specialist nurses, and and we provide a really integrated service where everybody everybody's opinion um, in what's happening with the patient, and the person themselves' opinion and their caregivers are all equally weighted, and the decisions that we make are made in that context, and the the advice that we give is given in that context. 
Um, and we know that if that happens, um, and it happens well as it does in our clinic, we can improve both quality of life and life expectancy. So we've done a couple of studies, and other people have done this as well, where we can show that if you come to one of those really well-run multidisciplinary things, you get about nine months extra survival. doesn't sound like a lot, but that's a third of a person's life expectancy. So that's really important. So it's recognising the disease, recognising all the aspects of the disease, bringing in expertise um, within other clinical professions uh, to help us to understand and drive forward and teach us, because there's a lot of teaching and learning going on. I always learn something in the clinic. I learn from my colleagues. I learn learn from our patients and I learn from, from learn from our caregivers. I never leave my clinic without having learned something, and that's really important because it's iterative. It keeps on going. It strikes me that uh, in a way it must be it, it has the potential to be quite lonely. If there are 150 people in Ireland a year, that means I imagine no, most 400, no, 400. 100, 150 new cases. New cases. Yeah. But I imagine it's a very small group of people, really, who have the knowledge to treat these people. And uh, certainly very few consultants, uh, hospital consultants like yourself. So you really do need to be collaborative just to have yeah. a kind of sanity check. And, uh, Absolutely. And kind of so, we, we, so we see about 80% of people with mm. motor disease in, Ireland in, in our clinic. And then there are two other um, smaller clinics, one in Galway and one in Cork. But we, 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 we would provide, I suppose, the, the expertise and the academic lead and also the clinical science lead to that. But you're absolutely right. Um, so we, we have a lot of peer support within within our clinic and um, within our clinical professionals in the clinic. But of course, I'm linked in and our, our entire group is linked in internationally as well. So so the clinic drives our research. It's, we do essentially clinical research. And we're part of a much larger consortium in Europe called the European Network to Cure ALS, NCAL. So I'm the deputy chair of that. And we've also set up a new network called TRICALS, which is the treatment initiative to Cure ALS, which is a clinical trial network. So I'm one of the, the founders in that. And we have other networks as well. We've one on, on genetics as well. And we meet, we, well, the TRICALS consortium, we meet once a week. We have a teleconference once a week. Great. Mm. Um, and then the, the NCALS, we have uh, two meetings a year, but we have a lot of interaction in between as well. So, so there's a huge amount of, of learned experience and sharing knowledge and knowledge transfer. Um, within the clinic but also in a, in a wider domain with colleagues across across the world but um, I suppose primarily on a day-to-day on -day week-to-week basis within Europe. Yeah. I'd like to shift the conversation a bit and, and uh, I'm struck by something you said uh, back in your days in, in the hospital setting up a new clinic and people one being... Of, one of about ten I set up actually. Yeah. <laughs> yes you're kind of an <laughs> entrepreneur and a social entrepreneur. Yes or, I think I am. Uh, uh, but, um, you know, it's you the creative side, you see. All my family is creative. Yes, I just yes. brought my creativity somewhere else. So these are your <laughs> compositions. Are your films, these are my compositions. Uh, these are my, uh, are your legacy. my symphonies. Uh, <laughs> but you kind of said you re met resistance and people thought, who was this young woman kind of coming in? I mean, it's difficult for women in, in medicine, isn't it? It's, it's still a male profession in many ways at the top. Yeah. Uh, what would you say to young women and how can we, how can we work to get rid of some of the kind of problems around gender and medicine worldwide. Yeah, yeah. so I, I think I think medicine is becoming feminized and that's good in a way. But you're right that the leadership um, in, in, in medicine is, is still a little bit, uh, um, uh, there's, there's a little bit of gender um, variance. It's, it's, you know, there, there still isn't enough um, uh, female leadership. I, I think it's true across the professions. I don't, I don't think it, 
I think medicine is, is a good example. But, but medicine is tough in the early years. You know, it's hard realistically yeah, to have a family yeah, yeah, uh, and, yeah, and yeah, be working nights yeah, and all yeah, that kind of stuff. Or not. Yeah. I'm asking a question. I don't yeah. know the answer. No, no I, I think any, any job where it's very competitive early on is difficult for women uh, um, for, for a couple of reasons. I mean, we're, we're, so I'm of an age where there was a lot of gender stereotyping still going on. And um, I, I remember actually struggling in my early 40s, which is a long time ago, um, <laughs> about, about gender identity. And actually, it, it's, it's interesting because I'm quite close to both my sisters uh, who are in different walks of life, as I mentioned. My, my younger sister is a film director, and this is very, very um, pertinent in the film industry as well. Um, this idea of being uh, a female in charge and in a leadership position but being female because all of the role models that we had within the sector um, were male. So how can you be um, a woman and be in charge and how do you behave in that context? Uh, because, because we're still very much constrained. If you're, um, if you're a, a powerful woman, um, that most of the, the terminology around that is actually quite gendered and, and quite, quite um, negative. So, you know, if, if, you're, if, you're, oh, um, if you are uh, powerful and, um, and have an opinion, you're strident. You know, if, if you, if you um, are, are um, assertive, you're aggressive. So, I, I, of course, I, that came up, I came up against that. Strident's a very interesting one. I've never noticed it before. It but the, you know, don't, you there are no, stri so there are no strident men. There are no yeah. strident men, yeah. no. Yeah. They're yeah. forceful, maybe, but, but not yeah. strident. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so things that, that are attributes that are positive in men are, are seen often, not always, but often as being negative in women. And so I remember uh, quite early on, because I was, I was um, qu quite young when I... Uh, reached a p position of seniority within the hospital by virtue of the two older um, male colleagues retiring early. So I was in my late 30s when I was the senior neurologist in the hospital. And I, and I was quite badly bullied, actually, if the truth be known. Only I didn't really realise it because, you know, there was nobody to talk to. There mm. was no role models around. Uh, there was no sense of how do you negotiate your way around this sort of power uh, structure and maintain your integrity, but also maintain your core attributes as a woman. And I really struggled with that, and, and I, I, my heart goes out to young women when I see that happening. And, and I think one of the um, answers to that is for us as women and older women to, to call it out when it happens, identify it, and try and provide that role model where you're actually kind of a normal person, you're female, <laughs> Um, and, and you're assertive without being without without allowing people to undermine you or gaslight you. So it still happens. I mean, it still happens at meetings. I, I, I remember very recently at a meeting where um, I said something four or five times. I was a me I was the only woman at the meeting with about fifteen people there, and and then a man said it, and then everybody said that's a really good idea. And I said, <laughs> now luckily the the man who said it was was one of my colleagues. They said yes, as Orla said. You know, um, so I think we need to do that. We need to do that with other women as well. So we need to, to for example, if we're at, we're, if we're at it's meetings... It's kind of a depressing thought, isn't it, to think that these people are doctors and they're not hearing half the human race speak. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think, I, you know, I don't think they're bad people. I think these are, are um, uh, um, gender identification stereotyping that happens very early in life. I think they're, they're um, you know, we just have to call them out when they happen and, and make sure that... When we see it happening, and women see it happening, men don't tend to see it happening, we should help other women. So I, th I think I learned that 
Um, no, I, I managed so you see to one of your that. many, many roles is, is uh, acting as a mentor of sorts to, to younger women coming I, up. I, I, th I think that's what we should do, and I yeah. think I think most women at, at, at my stage who, who have thought in any way about this do this as well. I think it's really important. Yeah. yeah. I'm, uh, finally, just to kind of wrap up, I'm, I'm actually just thinking as we talk that uh, you're talking about uh, you know your family as as, as communicators essentially. In different different fields, and and that's you know a really noticeable thing about you. You are a uh, uh, well, I won't say strident. You are a you know <laughs> a a good communicator, and 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 you talk quite a lot about medicine. You know, on on television, on radio, elsewhere, which probably comes a little bit from perhaps that family background. Because it's not something that's done enough. I think medicine doesn't talk about what it does enough. But um, I suppose what I'm Getting at is um, well. What could be done to to explain research better to the public? We're in a bit of a an era of crisis in a way. You know, in, yeah. in a recent opinion poll after the European election, seventy-five percent of Irish people said they'd had enough of experts. It's not just limited yeah. to, to other jurisdictions. Does this kind of worry you? And do you think? It's incumbent on the on the, the scientific community to go out there and, and tell its story. Or what do you think we should do? I think the the idea of we've had enough experts is an interesting one. Um, I'm a bit of a history buff as well, and um, that that happened that's happened before in history. You know, the English Civil War, for example, that that was said in mm. the English Civil War as well, um, and the Reformation actually. Um, so so I I think I think we need. Th I think the difficulty is that we're. We're challenged now by by uh, the explosion of information technology, and it's very easy to um, uh, appear to have knowledge in an unfiltered way um, without actually having the the skill set or the training to um, be able to uh, manage the knowledge in a hierarchical way that's meaningful. Um, so I mean, I, I, and I think that's the way it is, and we have to learn how to deal with that. Um, and I think I think communication is really important. I think we have to be respectful of people. Um, if, if somebody comes in, this happens to me a lot, um, with a big sheaf of things that they've pulled off the internet. Um, um, I, I think we have to be respectful of that, and we have to um, engage with what the information the person has, and patiently and painstakingly um, identify the reasons why that information mightn't be as relevant as it should be. So I, I think it's about learning to. Um, uh, not live within the hierarchy in which we find ourselves. I think it's about being humble and it's about being respectful. And it's about recognising that um, people um, um, have a desire to have knowledge and that uh, perhaps the, the way that they're integrating the knowledge uh, could be um, integrated in a better way and our job is to, is to help them to do that. And um, uh, one of the things I've said throughout my career to people, you know, I'm, I pay, I'm paid by the state, I'm a public servant. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we forget the second part of that, which is that we serve the public. And that our job is to, um, is to make sure that, that people are adequately informed. I think if we sit up there and say we're experts, I think that's very, um, it, it, it's not a good way of, of, of managing the problem. I think we need to be out there explaining and, and um, uh, uh, contextualising the information that's available. One of my patients, um, actually two of my patients, gave me uh, a mug, um, so two mugs at home, which says, uh, please, don't conf please do not confuse your Google search with my medical degree. And I think it's a great <laughs> one. 
because for, you know, because I, I, I think you know, I search Google as well, mm. and I, I argue with people based on my Google searches as well, in other walks of life. Uh, so we're no different. So I, I, I think it's a question of learning how to be be um, humble about our expertise and our learning and our training, and and being able to communicate um, the value of that expertise and learning. Uh, because uh, what it is, it's learning how to how to contextualize information in a way that's meaningful. I think the other thing is that it's it's difficult for people to um, discriminate between what say what we would call a testimonial, which is uh, a, a something that happened to somebody and they make assumptions out of that, and real science, you know, which, which is evidence based. So testimonial is my granny smoked and she was ninety nine. Exactly. So smoking yep. doesn't kill you. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and so we have to take that into context, but we have to go back and say yes. But if you had a hundred grannies or a thousand grannies, and we've done this study, um, and so um, you know we know that there's a risk it might affect you. So these are things that we need to explain and learn how to explain better. And I think I think it is a challenge, but you know I'm I'm confident that we can do that. Well, one area where the public uh, you know has a responsibility when it comes to medicine is of course when they vote, go to vote, and and in this country healthcare is one of the large kind of political issues of the day. You, you've been vocal. I mean, what, what do you think, briefly, are the contours of this debate? Or what, what could be done to ensure that we get better value for the huge amount of money as a proportion of GDP that we put into healthcare? Yeah. I mean, it, this is a perennial argument. And I think I've been active in, in um, politicking around you know, the dialoguing around health since the elections in 2000, the early 2000s. And it, it's, it's very, in a way, it's very demoralizing because it's the same argument. Um, and every, every election, it's the same argument. Health is perceived as a very important issue, but people, unfortunately, vote with their pocketbooks. And that, that's, you know. So what you need to do is, is make sure that the, the organs of health are also aligned around the pocketbook. And we're not very good at doing that. And the second, so there are a number of problems with this. That's one. Um, and I don't blame people. And the second thing is that um, the, the way that our health system is set up, um, you know, we, 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 have, we don't have multi-annual budgeting, and the, the reforms that need to take place will, will take a long time to come to fruition. And the people who will most benefit from those reforms are, are people who, who don't necessarily engage that much with the, um, with the political uh, system. So, so the, the people who are most disenfranchised are the people who are least likely to vote. And so from a cynical point of view, reaching out to that population doesn't have much political valence. Now, as citizens, um, we should care about that. Um, and we should, we should uh, believe that we should live in a just society. But that involves citizen engagement. We're not the only country in the world. We're, we're not by any means the worst country in the world in this. But the level of trust that our citizens have with the, uh, with the agents of the state is not very high. And that's actually across Europe mm. and in the US. That's declined. Um, the level of uh, the, the sense of, of ownership of citizenry that's declined across across everywhere, um, not just in Ireland, uh, and that that's a societal thing. And, and you know, I'm not sure that's a wave that's happening. I'm not sure that we can fix that. If, if we if we were to um, articulate what the best way to resolve the crisis that I've lived in in my life and throughout my professional life in health because it's been a crisis since I was appointed in 1996. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it, it, I, I think it's that we, we, um, 
measure the wrong things. So we overemphasize uh, the problems that are very visible, and to some extent, this is a uh, such as such as you know waiting lists and trolley counts and okay. waiting, and, and it's it's very unpleasant. And, and I'm not yeah. I'm not uh, belittling um, the yeah. the difficulties that but we what have. What should we really be measuring? But the, the 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 resolution of that is 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 in building of community services. So actually, I think that the salon to care um, aspirations of salon to care, which are, was the all party um, uh, document around how we build our health services, are correct. So they're they're about moving as much health care into a, a less expensive community level uh, services and keeping people out of hospitals unless there's something that we can really fix within the hospital. But of course that involves a, a, a considerable degree of investment uh, within community and within community services and um, uh, that involves quite a lot of, of reconfiguration of how we deploy our health services. And it also is going to be very expensive because we need to, in order to uh, do that, we need to keep the system running as it is and invest heavily. And, and of course, you know, um, there's a, a sense that we waste money within the sector, and there probably is there is a lot of inefficiency within the system. Um, but it, uh, the sort of metaphor that I would use is that you know, if you want to um, change the engine on a car that's running, you'd have to have another car running beside it uh, mm, yeah. at the same speed to allow you that car to uh, transfer over, you know, the components of the engine. And, and so you'd have to double the cost in a way to keep to, to transfer that car to make it run more smoothly if the car keeps on running, and and the appetite to increase investment but to put it in the correct place um, is not very strong, and it's of it's of concern to me um, currently um, that uh, the commitment to slow care seems to be somewhat lukewarm uh, within the political debate at the moment, and that's of concern. So I I'm not overly confident that we'll be able to fix the problems within what remains in my professional life, although it's very clear now that we know what we should be doing. But, but there are many, many, many interests, vested interests um, within the sector that are reluctant to, to drive that forward. And there are many historical mistakes that we made that have embedded those interests. And, and I was very active in the mid-2000s. Um, um, in, in, and and, and I, I'm not proud of saying this, but it's, it's true that it was very obvious in when we had money in the early 2000s that we were going in the completely wrong direction with respect to how we were developing our health service, and that was under Mary Harney as, as uh, um, Minister of Health, and she did a lot of good things. Uh, she, she did a lot of good things in cancer, and we have a much better cancer service than we did uh, before she became Minister. But but the 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 view that um, the resolution of our health system was in the private sector and that we would be closer to Boston than Berlin was, in my opinion, ill-advised and incorrect. I worked in Boston, so I know what the health services in Boston are like. And if you have money, they're very good. But if you don't, they don't exist. So I, I was vociferous in my opposition, and we debate. I know Mary Harney, and I respect her. I think she's a very able politician, and I think that she had some very good as I said, um, ideas around health with respect to cancer, but I think she erred in the um, uh, drive towards privatisation. And I think that did a lot of damage um, to the sector um, because neither the private nor the public sector really benefited from that. The private sector wasn't really able to take on what was being asked of it, and the public sector was underfunded. And then, of course, we had the crash and, and everything fell apart. So, so I think we're, we're still picking up the pieces of that. 
um, I think there is a move, obviously, to support our public services. But whether there's a move within within our, you know, within the the citizenship at large to be willing to pay for that, I, I, you know, I'm not as convinced of that, and that's a concern. So the good news is we have a blueprint. The bad news is we don't necessarily have the political will <coughs> to to implement that blueprint. And on that kind of a mixed note, I think we'll call it to a close. Professor Ola Hardiman, thank you very much indeed for talking to us.